0: Good morning. You guys doing well? Hey, Brian, could you grab those doors back there for me, please? Thank you. And lock them. We'll make sure that we've got those doors locked, too. Hey, we've got a great message this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. I've been feasting on this text for a couple weeks now. It's an amazing, an amazing text. This is our Encounters with God teaching series Experiencing God is the title of this weekend's message. We're wrapping up this teaching series and heading into a brand new teaching series next weekend, Easter Sunday, and we're going to be studying through. It's going to take us a little while to get through it. We're going to take it a little slower pace through the, uh, the book, the letter of 1 Peter, and we're titling it, uh, that series, CrossFit, Finding Wholeness in a Broken World. And uh, First Peter, Peter's going to help us do that. There's a lot of great insight in that. But this morning, we are looking at Isaiah 6. And uh, I want to start off by just uh, giving you a bit of a challenge and really kind of think about uh, what we're going to be studying here this morning as it relates to experiencing God. Um, if, you think, if you think that reading your Bible, praying, participating in a local church family If you think that living for God's glory every day of your life is boring, then you either don't know God or you're not living in vital union or communion with God. God is far from being boring. There's not a more exhilarating, exciting, enthusiastic life on this planet than than one that is fully devoted to Him and, and communing with Him and walking with Him. Those who know God never grow bored because there is always more of God to know, more adventure to be pursued, greater pleasure to be experienced. So here's my thesis statement for our study this morning. It's divided up into three sections. You'll see this in our text. We're gonna work completely through Isaiah 6 and you'll see these three sections in Isaiah 6. To see Him is to savor Him, and to savor Him is to show Him. That's the Christian experience. It involves those three things. You need to have all three of those. We were made to see, savor, and show the riches of God's glory. And I I guess what I'm saying here and what I want you to, to understand and ask you, do you actually know God? You may call yourself a Christian, you may know some facts about God as it relates to God's Word, but do you actually know God? Are you experiencing Him in your life? I mean, you can know a lot about God and still not know God. He can be intellectually coherent, but my question for you is, is He existentially compelling, captivating, that you want Him more than anything? Because that would give me an indication that you really do know God. You're experiencing Him. You've encountered Him. You're walking with Him. Is there a tremendous love, joy, peace that you draw on daily from an adequate view of God, an accurate view of God based on His Word and an intimate connection with God that enables you to face anything? I hope to help you with that. If not, it's good to have you with us this morning, and so let's begin with a word of prayer. Would you bow your heads with me? And uh, then we'll dive into our text and unpack these notes. Glorious Father God, we love you because you first loved us. You have pursued us with your steadfast love. God, this morning we want to see you more clearly. We want to savor you more completely so that we can show you more contagiously. Give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you. Open the eyes of our hearts and show us wonderful things from your word. Teach us how to connect with you, how to commune with you, how to walk with you so that our daily Christian behavior, our daily Christian experience will be an overflow of an an, adequate and an accurate view of you and an intimate connection with you that is filled with your presence, your peace, and your power for your glory. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. So let's take a look at this text. I'm just going to try to read completely through it without much uh, comment. And uh, some of you are saying, good luck, because it's a, it's a phenomenal uh, text. And this is Isaiah's encounter with God. If you ever read through the book of Isaiah, phenomenal book, 66 uh, chapters, he's very articulate, quite the order, a lot of uh, prophecy about the Messiah, it's pretty stunning. And this is when he has his major encounter with God and his commissioning from God, And it says in verse 1, chapter 6 of Isaiah, "...in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him stood the seraphim, each had six wings." With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called And the house was filled with smoke. And that's, so those first four verses are representing seeing, seeing God. And now we move into the section that talks to us about savoring God, verse 5. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. This is a sweet verse right here. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for, paid for. Now we move into the section of showing. Showing God, verse 8, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, go and say to this people, keep on hearing but do not understand, keep on seeing but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant, and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people. Far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. So, three things seeing, savoring, showing. That's the Christian experience. Let's begin with seeing, seeing Him. Let me give you some thoughts. You'll see the, the notes as, they, as we work through each one of these. Seeing with the eyes of my heart. When we talk about seeing, we're talking about seeing with the eyes of my heart, not my head. This was a vision that He had. And, and the Bible tells us in 1 Timothy 6.16 that no one can see God, no one has seen God. Why is that? Anybody know what that verse says? Why can't we see God? because he lives in unapproachable light. Have you ever seen Roadkill? You guys know what Roadkill is? You guys are looking at me like, what? That's what will happen to you, okay? You, it'll be… You'll disintegrate. God's holiness, our sinfulness, that's the idea there. No one has seen him. No one can see him. He lives in unapproachable light. That's a passage in the New Testament, 1 Timothy 6, 16. And yet in Ephesians 1, 17 through 19, it was a little bit of what I prayed, is that the Apostle Paul, praying for Christians, these are Christians, and he's saying, I pray that, that God would give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, knowledge meaning intimacy. You would just wouldn't know about God, but you would see him. You would have eyes. The, the eyes of, our heart, of your heart would see him. And, and, and he goes on and he says that, that the eyes of your heart would be opened so that you would encounter God. You would experience him. Now, one of the commentaries that I read basically said that Isaiah came to church and was shocked because uh, God was the last one he thought he would see. I found that somewhat humorous and I thought, you know, I wonder what did you hope to see when you came to church today? Maybe see your friends or maybe hear the band or, or uh, see the bald guy get red in the face as he's trying to tell us something about what the Bible says or something. What did you come to see? I hope you came first and foremost to see God. In fact, that's what you need to pray for every time you read your Bible, every time you pray, every time you come to church, oh God, I want to see you because I really don't see you the way that I should because it would really transform me if I did. And that's that's a little bit of the idea. Seeing with the eyes of my heart, not my head. How many have been, you've read through text before? And I read completely through the Bible at least once or twice a year. And I'll just go through text sometimes and then after about the, you know, the 10th or 20th time or the 30th time of going through the text, all of a sudden the thing stands off the page. It's like speaking to me right where I am. How many have ever had that experience before? That's God speaking to you. He's opening the eyes of your heart. You're beginning to see things about God that you hadn't seen before. And He's meeting you right where you are. That's a little bit of the idea. Here's the next point, is that desperation can lead to greater revelation. So as it relates to seeing God, desperation can lead to greater revelation. Did you notice in verse 1, it said, In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. What is the the historical context here? Fifty-two years of peace and prosperity is what they experienced under King Uzziah. And now that is coming to an end, and there's this impending doom hanging over their heads. Some of you are living in the year King Uzziah died. What I mean by that is that some of you are living in situations where something you always counted on has been ripped out from under you, and you fear the future. That's what's happening to to the people here. Did you notice when it says, "In the year the king Uzziah died, I saw the Lord." The the, the title Lord. Anytime you read it in the Old Testament, it's uppercase L, lowercase O R D. It represents his general God's general title, and it's because a little bit as you work through there, he's going to give him uh, give us his personal name Yahweh. But here it's his personal title, which means the sovereign, the supreme sovereign one the supreme sovereign. So we could almost read it like this. In the year we lost our human king, I saw the real king. That's what he's saying. When we felt like everything was falling out from under us, Our sense of security and support and and all that we needed got jerked out from under us. But it was in that time I began to see the real king unlike ever before. In the year that I lost my job, in the year when I went through the divorce, in the year I was diagnosed with cancer, in the year I buried my child, I saw the Lord I saw the Lord unlike I had ever experienced Him before. I saw that I could rest in His loving, wise control over all of the circumstances of life. That's what he's saying. That's why it's so profound. This is such a profound text when you begin to understand this. I love what uh, the Apostle Paul says In 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 9, he describes this kind of desperation in his own life. And he says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. That's an awesome set of verses. That's 2 Corinthians 1, 8, and 9. By the way, uh, I gave you another cross-reference there, John 12, 41, that it tells us that this is the pre-incarnate Christ. So, who's sitting on the throne? This is Jesus. You guys know what a Christophany is? This is a Christophany. This is an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. By the way, the whole book's about Jesus. I don't know if you knew that, but it all points to Him. They point ahead to Him, and we point back and it's all, all about Jesus, our wonderful Savior. Here's the, the next uh, point. So you got, uh, here's the third one here. So seeing with the eyes of my heart, not my head, desperation can lead to greater revelation. And then you go from knowing about God to knowing God. This is what happened to Isaiah. This is what needs to happen to us on a daily basis, Really? I don't want to just know about you. I don't want you just to be a concept in my life. I want you to be a reality. Turn to the person uh, next to you or the people sitting around you and uh, ask them, what's the difference between concept versus reality? What's the difference between knowing about God and, and really knowing God? How would that be different in your life? What would that look like in your life? Real quick, do that. You guys coming up with some good answers, I hope, if you're thinking about that? Because that's what you need more than anything. That's what you need when you come to church week in and week out. You need to not just know about God. You need, you need to know Him. You need to connect with Him. You need to experience Him deep, deep in your heart. John seventeen three. it says, this is eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You want to be more alive than you've ever been before? Get to know God. And the, in the word there, no, is not just uh, intellectually coherent. It's existentially compelling, captivating. You're experiencing Him. He's more real to you uh, than, than your trials or your temptations. That's the reason why we over, we're overcome by trials is because the trial is more real to us than God. It's the reason why we give in to temptation is because uh, the issues of life, the things in creation, are more attractive to us than, than God. That's why we need not just to know about Him. We want an experience with Him. That's part of this. And it begins by seeing. Now, I'm not going to spend as much time. Last night, I probably spent too much time on the study here. And so, uh, we didn't get out until about midnight last night. And, uh, and the service started at six. So, uh, that's, that's crazy, isn't it? No, we, we didn't spend that much time, obviously. But uh, but I, I walked through, so I'm going to try to get through this pretty fast, so hang in there with me. But I walked through different ideas. When you look at this text, it, it tells you a lot about various attributes of God. And it's so critical that in knowing Him, you spend some time beholding, thinking, thinking out the implications. For instance, in verse 1, it says, sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. What does that speak of? It speaks of majesty. Majesty. It speaks of greatness. In ancient days, the clothing of monarchs was a measure of their status. So there's that sense of wow. And then you've got in verse 3, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Did you know that that's the only characteristic that it's used in three times in the Scripture? It doesn't say God's love, love, love or God's grace, grace, grace. But this is the only one. And, it, this is, uh, and and there's a lot of different reasons for it. I think one reason is that this is evidence of the Trinity, speaking Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Holy, holy, holy. But I believe that He has holy love. He has holy grace. He has holy uh, knowledge of you. And, and the idea of holy... Holy, holy, magnitude is conveyed through repetition. And this is what he's saying. He's saying that God is so beyond your wildest dreams, you can't even, there's no words to describe him, and there's no, no thoughts that can fully capture him. He's beyond, beyond. He's, in fact, I put down, he's superlative perfection. And then you got glory, verse Three, the whole earth is full of his glory. And then verse four, you show you see a little bit of that. The foundations of the threshold shook. Weight, significance, importance matter. That God matters more than anything. God is more real and more important than anything or anyone else. Things give weight to God. You fit into his agenda. He doesn't fit into your agenda. See, I can always tell sometimes when someone has a concept of God rather than the reality of God, because God becomes a means to an end. He's going to make me more successful in my business, and and we're going to have a more successful family, and that's why they're pursuing God. Wait, 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 wait. It's not about you. It's, It's about God. It's about His glory. It's about you fitting into His agenda. It's about not Him being a means to an end, but He is the end. He's not just part of your life. He is your life. He's everything to you. In fact, as you encounter Him and you begin to see His majesty and His holiness and His glory, oh my goodness, you want more of Him. There's an appetite that's stirred up within you unlike ever before, and you know that only He can satisfy that deep longing of your soul. People who claim they've been saved but don't change aren't saved. You cannot remain the same when you encounter the God of the galaxies. When you encounter the God who created the heavens and the earth and you walk in vital union with him, you're going to be different. It's going to change your life. That's why it's so necessary for our lives to connect with him at, at a deep level within our hearts, not just going through the motions, checking the church box, so to speak. We come to encounter him, to know him. I hope you got some glimpses of him while we sang those songs. Oh my goodness, that the, the worship time was just wonderful, and those the words of that just came out and grabbed a whole of me. That last song, especially. Oh my goodness, just he just was saturating me with his love, and it was just oh, there's nothing quite like that. And uh, then you look at the seraphim created with six wings. Man, what kind of creatures are these? That's wild. This is the only place in the Scripture where they're mentioned. Why six wings? They were created with six wings in order to be in the presence of God. Two wings cover their face. Why is that? Because no one can see God and live. Exodus thirty three twenty three. 23. God said that to Moses. God, Moses said, hey, I want to see you. I want to see your glory. No, you can't see me and live. But Moses had a chance to see just the the, kind of the the back of part of him, so to speak, or where he had been. And Moses glowed so much that he freaked out the Israelites when he came down off of Mount Sinai. They were like, Whoa, cover your face. We can't handle this. This is overwhelming. And um, two wings to cover their feet, which is a sign of unworthiness or submission to God. We see this with Moses when he took off his sandals before the burning bush. And then a set of wings for flying ready to swiftly do God's will. And uh, so let me let me, just, let's, let me summarize this uh, just a little bit here, and, and there's a great uh, story that I'll share with you here as we kind of work through this. There, there's really something about the majesty and the holiness and glory of God that is, that is terribly frightening and irresistibly fascinating at the same time. Like fact, that's, that's probably the, the paradox of, of a text like this, that, that it's both humbling and also uplifting at the same time. And that's probably a good way to, to that you're, you're really truly encountering God when you begin to have this, this kind of an experience. And really, it would be classified as the fear of God. You know, the fear of God is the, the, the beginning of wisdom is, is what? The fear of God. The fear of God is the beginning where You're not even on first base. You're not even up to bat until you begin to have this fear of God. Fear of God, uh, wisdom is seeing and responding to life from God's perspective. And the fear of God is a, is a life-altering, joyful awe and wonder of the beauty and the glory of who Jesus is and what he's done for us that ruins us for anything else. That's the fear of God. And um, you get God wrong... And your perspective on everything else is wrong. You're not going to be able to respond to life appropriately. That's the reason why the beginning of wisdom, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You just, you're beginning to understand and begin, begin able to see and respond to life more appropriately. And um, there's a great story found, in I won't spend time reading it, but uh, Mark 4, where Jesus calms the storm, he's in the boat, he's, it actually says, but he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion, and uh, it says that the waves were breaking into the boat. How many have ever been in a boat when the waves are breaking into the boat? Anybody have that experience before? Okay, hope you can snorkel, huh? Because I've been out there at Roosevelt Lake when a big storm came through and was sunk, we sunk a boat. We had a guy here last night that uh, has sunk a couple boats out there. It could be pretty frightening. These guys, these disciples, who are pretty tough dudes for the most part, you know, some of them are fishermen, and there's waves are coming over the boat. They're freaking out. They go wake up Jesus, because he's in the stern asleep on a cushion. And they wake him up, and he stands up and says, He rebukes the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you no faith? Now, now here's what's interesting about that. Faith, the foundation of faith is thinking, so you have to… You're not thinking through the implications of who I am, that I'm with you, I'm going to take care of you, but you're not thinking out the implications of that. That's when you study God's Word, You're, you're working that deep into your heart. You're beholding His beauty and glory, and that's what begins to transform our lives. Check this out, though. This is amazing. Verse 41, and they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey Him? Did you hear what's going on? First of all, they're freaked out over the storm, and then He calms the storm, and now they're freaked out over Jesus. It's like, who is this guy? Oh, my goodness. By the way, if you fear God, you will fear nothing or no one. That's really what we need in our lives. We need to have a fear, joyful awe and wonder of who he is and what he's done for us. And, uh, and these guys, uh, I mean, they were just, it was, it was Sigmund Freud. You didn't know I was going to quote Sigmund Freud this morning. He was a messed up dude. But, uh, but he was the one that said um, that religion was invented so that people could deal with nature well, you know, Christianity must have blew it because we've got a God that's that's scarier than nature. Then we're more frightened by this God than they were by nature and by what was going on there. And so, here's the point. You haven't seen the majesty, holiness, and glory of God until you see his power, his perfection, his importance to the degree that all of your complaining about him, questioning of him, and mistrust in Him seems ridiculously unfounded. You haven't seen the majesty and the holiness and the glory of God until, until you begin to worship Him, until you begin to say, oh, my goodness, I, I put my life in your hands. I want you more than anything. There's a book that I read here a couple years ago. It was really a phenomenal book. It's by Stephen DeWitt. It's Eyes Wide Open. Listen to what he says as it relates to creation. The heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. You guys know where that's found? That's found in Psalm 19. So basically, Psalm 19, it also tells us that in Romans 1 that through the revelation of creation, there's evidence of a God. And what creation should do is to draw our hearts to God. Because if creation is this beautiful, oh my goodness, The God who created this is even more beautiful. Listen to what Stephen DeWitt says in Eyes Wide Open. He says, what if we were to realize that every sunset viewed, every sexual intimacy enjoyed, every favorite food savored, every song sung or listened to, every home decorated, and every rich moment enjoyed in this life isn't ultimately about itself, but is an expression and reflection of God's essential character. Wouldn't such beautiful and desirable reflections mean that their source must be even more beautiful and ultimately more desirable? But ever since the fall, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are blind to the reality that He is more desirable, more satisfying, than anything in creation. See, creation, the things that we enjoy in creation are gifts from God and pointers to God. And and our experience should not be terminated on the, the creation, but it should roll on up to the creator. And that's why I believe that even Christians have a greater experience in creation because they know where these things all come from. They come from him. They have a deeper experience. And so... God is more dazzling, more magnificent, more wonder-inducing than anything you've ever experienced. Nothing is more beautiful, more desirable, and satisfying. Let's go to the next point here that takes us to the next and that 's that savoring, kind of Kind of went into that a little bit, but uh, Jonathan Edwards, great American uh, theologian, said God is glorified not only by His glories being seen, but by its being rejoiced in. So it's one thing to see it, but it's another thing to really rejoice and let it roll on up to God and understand, wow, He's given me some wonderful things, and God, I, I give you glory because of these things. And so God is glorified in our attention, our affections, and our actions. Let me just share this with you. As it relates to worship, I'll grab a drink here just for a minute. Uh, wow. Thank you, God. <laughs> Quadruple shot. Um, let's talk about worship just for a minute. Worship is the act of uh, ascribing ultimate value to something in the way, in a way that energizes and engages your whole person. In other words, your mind, emotions, and will. So I hope that you came this morning to worship God. And so worship involves, and this experience of God involves, that's why seeing, savoring, showing, involves our mind, emotions, and will. You guys are familiar with the text where Jesus is uh, hammering the Pharisees. He says, hey, these people worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Matthew 15, eight through nine. Now, this idea of worship is extremely important to understand, because if you go to church, sing some songs, read the Scripture, and agree with the beliefs and doctrine, but never experience in your inner being a ravishing sense of beauty and joy, it's not worship. If you're just going through the motions, you're not connecting with God. There should be something that stirs within you, and if it doesn't, you ought to cry out to God, stir me, move me. I want to see you, because right now I'm not seeing you very clearly. Let's flip that. You can go to a service and experience great emotion, but if it doesn't change the fundamental way in which you live your life, it's not really worship. You're not experiencing God. God. So, so it's, it's hard experience based on objective truth of God's word that moves you into action. It makes you a different person. You begin to respond to the trials and the temptations of life a whole lot differently. You become a better person, a better parent, a better spouse, a better co-worker, a better neighbor because you've encountered the living God. You're walking with him. You know him. And um, okay. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor Ray, for that. That helped me. Okay, so let's move on to the next. We're quickly running out of time here. We're going to take communion this morning. So let me give you these next few points. Nothing satisfies the unique deep, and, long, uh, the unique and deep longing of your soul like the God of grace. And I, I would encourage you when you go through the growing notes this next week and, and do a Con- contrast, comparison between Isaiah 6 and Jeremiah chapter 1, when Jeremiah encounters God. This is what you're going to see a, a difference in their encounter. This the reason why I put unique and deep longing of your soul, because when we encounter God, we're going to all have a little bit of a different kind of an experience, but they're going to tend to fall into one of two broad categories. Isaiah had a bit of an, a superiority complex, quite the order, very articulate, seemed to put a lot of emphasis on his ability to speak because that's the first thing that he sees. Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. What? That's a phenomenal book you wrote. Yeah, but compared to God, I really realize who I I am in light of Him. And, And it was almost like when God showed up to Isaiah, He said, Start trembling. When He showed up to Jeremiah, He said, Stop trembling. Because Jeremiah was freaking out. He was saying, I'm calling you, Jeremiah, to go speak to these people. I can't speak to these people. I'm too young. I can't do that, and God says, stop trembling. I'm gonna be with you, I'll give you the words. So you got this contrast between these two experiences and these two encounters with God. Isaiah needed to be lowered a bit. He had a kind of pride that was boasting about, hey, look at me, I'm a great order. That's one form of pride. There's another form of pride, it's called self-pity. It's, both of them are, are self-absorption, and that's fundamentally what's wrong with us is we become so preoccupied with ourselves. And Jeremiah had that, that self-absorption in the form of self-pity. I can't do that. Nobody can use me. I'm, I'm totally unworthy. And so he needed to be lifted up. Isaiah was kind of brought down, and, and Jeremiah was lifted up. And that's why we've got to be careful not to impose our experience of God as a standard for anyone else Isaiah had too high of a view of himself, Jeremiah had too low view of himself, but both had an inadequate view of God. And so they needed a, they needed a higher view of God, which, which brings humble confidence. In the next statement, you've seen this many times, you should have it memorized by now, it's an important statement to remember when you look at the cross, this is what you're, you're telling yourself. Grace, when you understand grace, grace means I'm more sinful than I ever dare to think, but I'm more loved than I ever dare to dream. Verse five: Woe is me! I don't deserve to live. That's what he's saying. When he said, "Woe is me," I'm cursed. I don't deserve to live, for I am lost. What does he mean by that? I'm falling apart. I'm devastated. I'm destroyed. This is like a, a, a near-death experience. Anybody ever have a near-death experience where you're like, "Oh my goodness, my life just passed before me. I thought I was going to die." Anybody? I had a guy call me up on the phone one time and threaten my life, say he's going to come over my house and blow out my brains. I said, "Oh, okay. See you soon." Are you kidding? I was freaking out. It's like, what is uh, this? Is what he's experiencing here? I think that, I think that this divine superlativeness also is kind of making him feel pretty small, Isaiah. Um, I went to Apollo High School, graduated over here. You guys familiar with where Apollo High School is? Okay, Um, best high school in the whole world. Okay, probably not, but um, I was I was tickled to death to get out of high school, to be quite honest (laughs) with you. (laughs) <laughs> but, uh, but when I was in the sophomore, my sophomore PE class, there was a guy by the name of uh, Bobby Horner. And maybe you've never heard of him, but uh, this guy was a phenomenal baseball player. He, he led it all four years, set all kinds of records at Apollo as varsity baseball. And home run hitter, unbelievable. Went on to ASU, set some records there, did a phenomenal job. And then he went on to the pros and played about 10 to 12 years in, in pro baseball. So he's in my PE class, phenomenal athlete and uh, in playing baseball. And hey, listen, I played little league in grade school, okay? Get off my back. I mean, I felt so inadequate around this dude, and everybody wanted him on his team, and when he was choosing up teams, hey, pick me, pick me, Bobby. I want to be on your team, please. Because we know, knew that any team that he was on, they're going to kill the other team, just this one dude. If that's true... With human superlativeness, even more so is that true with divine superlativeness. There's almost that sense of inadequacy, just like, you know, I'm a man of unclean lips. And when you read Isaiah, he's he's a phenomenal orator, and yet compared to God… This is a little bit of what he's experiencing. But don't miss the next part of this. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Do you understand that? Don't tell me grace isn't in the Old Testament. It's all over the Old Testament. This is grace. Your guilt is taken care of. Your sin is atoned for. Man, if you understood that, if you just reflected on that just in the least bit, that would be revolutionary to your life. There is no big divide between you and God. You have access into the throne room of God. You can know God. He's made a covenant with you through his death, burial, and resurrection. He will never leave you or forsake you, regardless of what you may be feeling, whatever you're going through. He is with you. He is working in your life. Nothing can separate you from his love. And that's what he's, that's really the the understanding of what he's saying. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Your sin is atoned for. Your sin is atoned for. You're at one with God. That's what that means. It's paid in full. There's nothing you can do to erase that. Oh, my goodness. See, that's what separates Christianity from all the major cults and religions of our world today. Everything else is about working and achieving. This is about receiving this is about receiving the gift of life. It's been paid for. Oh my goodness, I'm gonna blow up my vocal cord, just getting tickled to death over that. I mean, it just, it just, it, it overwhelms me. And I, and I hardly ever live near to that level of, of what he's calling us to because I oftentimes deal with guilt in my life and kinda of feel like, oh, I don't know where I am with God. And he's, he makes it very clear. Very clear, the one thing that Jesus died for was so that you could come into the presence of God and not be consumed. And by the way, he never shows you your sin except to heal you by his grace. So anytime he points out sin, and maybe you feel convicted in this message, it's because he's drawing you closer, because he loves you. <laughs> he's, he loves you because he knows that there's things in your life that interfere with you and him. And he's drawing you closer. He reveals your sin only so that he can reveal his grace to you. And this is kind of how you know you're getting this whole idea that I'm more sinful than I ever dared to think. I'm more loved than I ever dared to dream, is that you can actually receive criticism. And when someone comes up and criticizes you, you don't have a a meltdown and you don't blow up. You almost kind of have this response, is that all you got on me? Because I know that the list is much longer than what you just said. I know there's much more. I'm more sinful than I ever dared to think. Jesus had, I was so sinful, Jesus had to die for me. See, do you understand? So there's that humility. And see, that's why Isaiah needed to be brought down. He needed to be humbled. But then there's also that, that confidence. But I'm more loved than I ever dared to dream. Oh, my goodness, He gave His life for me. And therefore, not only can you hear criticism, not only can you hear the truth, but then you can speak the truth and you can do it in a loving way. That's what, that's what relationships are about. It's the mutual giving and receiving of truth and love. And, and the cross helps us to do that, helps us to do that in a, in a very healthy way. And here's the next point. To the degree that I see my sin is to the degree I, uh, I savor my Savior. No sin that you've committed or has been committed against you is a match for God's redeeming grace. You know, if, if I came to you and I… Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones is the one that gave, gave us this illustration, but if I came to you and I said I paid a bill for you, you wouldn't know how excited it to be until I told you what bill that was would you? We were sitting at a restaurant. There was a whole bunch of us. There's probably about 10, 15 of us sitting at a restaurant. And we knew that the the bill probably came to quite a bit of money. And we asked for the bill at the end. And the gal came over to us and said, oh, it's already been paid for. We go, huh? Now, you got to understand something is that Nancy and I typically will uh, split meals at restaurants, and it's because we'd, we'd do that to save a little money, but we'd also do that because we don't need all the food that they typically give you on that plate. And so we, we would split meals, and so we split a meal during that time. And, and so when they came and said, hey, your, your bill has already been paid for, and then we said, well, how about the tip? And um, they go, oh, no, that's already been taken care of. And it wasn't anybody at the table. It was somebody that was in the restaurant that paid our bill. It was, it was probably a few hundred dollars for them. And we were, like, delighted. But there was a thought that came to mind before we were delighted in that, is that I looked over at Nancy, and said, oh my goodness, we shouldn't have split that meal. We should have ordered something much bigger and better. Huh? How many would have thought that? Come on, let's fess up. Yeah. And that was a meal we were delighted, and maybe someone has Paid for things for you and you were delighted, but not near the delight that should come over you when you understand what Jesus did on the cross for you was indispensable and amazingly costly. It was indispensable because it was the only way that that could ever be paid, your debt, your sin debt, to a holy, righteous God. He paid that for you. So to the degree that you understand that, to the degree you have unspeakable and glorious joy and then showing him. Let's wrap this up. In fact, those of you that are gonna be passing out communion, go ahead and find your way back there. So we're gonna be uh, taking communion. Let me knock this out, this last part. So showing him, it's only natural normal. To see him is to savor him, and to savor him is to show him. And there's three words that help us in this. Purpose, persevere, and promise. Purpose, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. Verse eight, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I sin?" And whom will go for us? Did you notice his response? And then I said, "Hear my. Send me." That's the Great commission. Christian, follower of Jesus Christ, those of you that have made a confession of faith, do you have any idea that you have been made a character in and a carrier of the great story of redemption through our Savior Jesus of cosmic proportions? That's what he's talking about here. Here's the next thing. How do we persevere in that? If this God is for me, who can be against me? Now Paul said it in Romans 8:31 and 32, but Isaiah' is experiencing it. God is sending Isaiah to a people. You probably as we read through that, you go, "Well, this sounds like these people have hard hearts exactly. When he gives him his job description, God is sending Isaiah to people who will be totally resistant because they have chosen the glory of man over the glory of God. Now, imagine God comes to you and says, I want you to go to your neighbors, and I want you to share with them the gospel. Oh, by the way, you're going to be persecuted by them. Oh, by the way, they're not going to listen to anything that you say. They're going to despise you. Hear my, send me. What would cause a guy to do that when he knows the job description is that these people are going to persecute you, these people are going to despise you, they're going to listen to a thing you're saying? Only an encounter with the living God, because you realize having Him is enough. Because you are so happy and secure in Him, you can share your faith even if it means persecution. What people need more than anything is to be convinced that the most desirable and soul-satisfying reality in the world is God. And we are facing a society that is becoming more and more hateful to the gospel of Jesus Christ, but in God, we cannot fail. Take a look at the last point. Here's the promise. What you do in God's name is never in vain. Verse 9, it might have sounded a little strange, but the holy seed is in the stump. What is that? Yeah, it's going to look like a bunch of trees cut down, and yet there's a seed in that stump. Here's the promise that that what you do is never in vain. Though things may look good, may not look good on the outside, I'm still working and your efforts will bring about a future harvest. So let, let let me level with you. I know some of you like me have unbelievers as friends and family members. Don't stop sharing the gospel with them because there's a seed in the stump. It's not in vain. That's the promise we have right there. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this morning. What an amazing message this is. And I pray that while we take communion this morning, that we would have an Isaiah 6 experience. May we see you. May we savor you. And so when we leave here, we can show you unlike ever before. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.